All right, good morning. Great to see you again this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 28. We've been in the book of Acts for quite a while now. We actually started the Sunday after Labor Day last year, and we have reached the penultimate sermon, which I think is the fancy way of saying the second to last sermon. So we have two to go, Acts 28, 1 to 16 this morning, and Acts 28, 17 to 31 next week. Our hope and prayer always is that we are faithful to teach the Word of God and to open. In fact, the reason why we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. We know there are enough opinions out there. Everybody has an opinion, but what we desperately need to hear from is the Word of God. And so my prayer this morning is I would be faithful to simply teach what it says. Surprise, guitar fell there. That's okay. Uh, Hopefully we can be faithful to teach what it says and God will work through it. So to that end, let me pray and then we'll get to it. Uh, But God, we do pray this morning that you would give us your grace, that as we open your word and we turn our attention to the book of Acts, that you would speak loudly and clearly. God, I do pray that I would be faithful to deliver your word this morning. My job is simply to deliver the mail. doesn't mean I get to change what the letter says. I just try to report what it's talking about. And so, Lord, help me to be faithful to that task. And I pray that you would give ears to hear for all of us in this room, that we would be impacted by your word, that we would not receive these words as idle words, but rather that we would see them for what they really are, which is your word, living and active, able to teach, rebuke, correct, and training in righteousness. So God, please be with us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think we all know that life in this broken world can be unpredictable and fragile. One minute everything can seem like it's going great, and then the next minute everything can feel like it's falling apart. Life can change in an instant. Or to say it another way, all of us are 10 minutes away from a phone call or an incident that could forever alter the course of the rest of our lives. Just this week, I've heard personal stories of life-altering events that just make you want to weep. I've heard a story of a couple days away from adopting their first child, or at least they thought they were only to find out that the birth mother had actually aborted the child months previously and had been pocketing the adoption money all the way along the time. Another family found out this week that a relative, close relative, had terminal cancer, only a few months to live. Another family finds out that their child is really sick and that the road ahead is going to be long and hard, and there might not be a happy ending. These are not theoretical stories, by the way, or stories that I made up. These are stories that I've heard or seen this week from friends or friends of friends or acquaintances. Life in this broken world is indeed unpredictable and fragile, and sometimes it's just plain heartbreaking. So what do we do with that? Given the uncertainty and fragility of life, how do we navigate life in this broken world? How do we have hope when sometimes things just seem hopeless? Well, I think there's only one answer to that question that in the end will prove to be satisfactory, and that's because I think there's only one place we can look to find hope given the hopeless world that we live in. We look to the character of God. A friend of mine recently endured a terrible family tragedy, and he shared with me that the one thing that sustained them through the midst of their tragedy was a piece of advice that they'd received from a pastor. This pastor was not me, by the way, someone I don't know. And the advice that the pastor gave them was simply this, that life can indeed change in the scope of a moment. One call can change the history of your family or your marriage or your kids' lives or your own health. But the one call that you will never get is a call that God's character has changed or what Jesus did on the cross has changed. 
And so he implored my friend and his family to look to the character of God in the midst of the uncertainty of life. Now, I'm thankful that my friend had someone who pointed him in that direction. But more importantly, I'm thankful that what that pastor taught is true. In the midst of a world that is oftentimes hopeless and can change in an instant, the one thing that we can hang our hat on that we know is never changing and will never change is the impeccable character of God. And because God's character is our great hope, I think the passage that we're about to look at this morning in Acts 28 is a really encouraging one and a really important one. In Acts 28, 1-16, we read about the ongoing journey of Paul as he's making his way to Rome. And at first glance, it may seem that this is a passage about poisonous snakes or miraculous healings or travel details, even how they recover from a shipwreck. But I don't think that's what Acts 28, 1-16 is really about at all. Ultimately, I think our passage this morning is about the unchanging character of our great God. And so it's my hope this morning that as we study his character in Acts 28, and as we see his character in action, our desire to rest and trust in his character will only grow. Because in the midst of a world that is constantly changing and wildly unpredictable, the anchor that we have for our souls is that the character of God never changes. So if you would... And you're physically able, please stand here, Acts 28, 1 to 16. Standing is just a simple way we can show our reverence for the Word of God. Acts 28, 1 to 16. You can follow along as I read. You can look along at the words on the screen, or you can read along in your own Bibles. Acts 28, 1 to 16. The Word of God says, says this, beginning in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature in the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up suddenly or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time and saw no, most, no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius, and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So the word of God, you may be seated. Now there's some pretty cool stuff happening here in the first 16 verses of Acts 28. Keep in mind, we're coming off a shipwreck here, and we're learning that they landed on the island of Malta. And if you're the type of person who enjoys a good story about poisonous snakes or miraculous healings, and let's be honest, who doesn't enjoy a good story about those things, then Acts 28 will get your attention. But as I mentioned just a few moments ago, I don't think Acts 28 is ultimately about snakes. 
I don't think it's about miraculous healings or travel details. Ultimately, I think it's about the character and plan of God. And in particular, there are two things we learn about the character of God in this passage. One is this, God keeps his promises. And the second is simply that God provides for his people. I think it's important that you see both of these things in this passage. So let's just start with the first one, that God keeps his promises. Now, at the beginning of Acts 28, there's this fascinating and even somewhat humorous account about a poisonous snake. Now, for the record, I should just go out and say, I am not a snake guy. So typically, I don't find stories about poisonous snakes to be too humorous. I find them to be terrifying. But this one, I think, has an element of humor to it. And it's definitely worth noting, not just the element of humor, but the overall story. So look again at verses 1 to 6. Because I want you to see what happens here with Paul. Verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature in the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting, him, waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So the basic gist of the story in verses 1 to 6, I think, is fairly easy to follow. Paul is gathering sticks to put them in the fire, and as he does so, he's bitten by a viper. Now, he shakes the viper off, or the poisonous snake, he shakes it off into the fire, and in the end, no harm comes to him. Now, what adds an interesting layer to the story is the reaction of the islander natives as they see this happening to Paul. When they initially see the snake hanging from Paul's hand, they assume he must be a murderer, and that justice has tracked him down. He may have miraculously escaped the shipwreck, but God would not allow him to live because he was a murderer. Therefore, this is why the snake has bitten him. This is the conclusion that they come to. And so they go into watch mode. And this is, to me, the humorous part of the story. They go into watch mode waiting for Paul to keel over dead. They assume he's going to die soon. And so you get the picture in verse 6. They're just kind of looking at each other like, he's going to die now. He's going to die now. He's going to die now. But he never dies. In fact, eventually they come to the conclusion nothing's going to happen to him. And no misfortune is going to happen to him. And so by the end of the count in verse 6, the natives of the island have completely changed their mind. No longer do they think he's a murderer. Instead, they now think he is a god. It's actually the exact opposite of what happened in Acts 14. In Acts 14, the crowds labeled Paul a god. Eight verses later, they try to stone him to death. Here in Acts 28, the crowds label Paul a murderer. Two verses later, they call him a god. And in that, there is surely something to be said about the fickleness of the crowds, is there not? If you are chasing after the approval of the crowds, and by the way, it would seem that most in our culture are doing exactly that. They're chasing after social media likes, or they're chasing after the approval of their neighbors, trying to go the direction that the culture is headed in. But if that's the direction you're headed in, you should know this, the crowds are fickle. You're chasing after the wind. Nevertheless, the big question of this snake account is simply this. What is the purpose of this story? Why does Luke and ultimately God include it in Paul's journey to Rome? What's the point? Now, some have argued, foolishly, I would add, some have argued over the years that the purpose of this story is to show that Paul was some sort of Superman-like figure. 
that he could miraculously heal people and even shake off vipers, that he was the Chuck Norris of his day, poisonous snakes biting him and then dying rather than vice versa. But that doesn't really make sense of this narrative, nor does it make sense of the rest of the New Testament. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, Paul is not presented as a superman, but rather he's presented as a weak person with thorns in his flesh that God still uses anyway. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that when Paul's writing most of the New Testament, he's usually writing from prison, and eventually he's killed because of his faith. So he's not a superman busting through prison walls. Rather, he's a jar of clay that God uses in a powerful way. So the point of the snake narrative is not to point out, this is how awesome Paul is. No, that's not the point at all. But rather, I think the point of the snake story is simply to show the lengths that God goes to to fulfill his promises. And in that way, the key to understanding why this story is included is found all the way back in Acts 23, verse 11. In Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord told Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In other words, God made a promise to Paul back in Acts 23 that one day Paul is going to come to Rome and he is going to bear witness about Jesus. And what happens here in verses 1 to 6 is a reminder then that God keeps his promises no matter what. Whether it be murderous plots, that was Acts 23, even to an extent Acts 27, whether it be shipwrecks, that's Acts 27, or poisonous snakes here in Acts 28, God is going to keep his word. No matter what it takes, God was going to get Paul to Rome, even if it meant that he was going to have to shake off poisonous snakes into the fire. And in that, we are reminded of a key aspect of God's character. He keeps his word. He fulfills his promises. Now, if there's anything I've learned in my 41 plus years, it's this. Even good intentioned people often fail to keep their word. For example, we spent more than a few days in the hospital over the course of the last three years with our son Dawson. And I can't tell you how many times a doctor has told us some variation of this. When you get out of the hospital, we'll call you in the next day or two to set up an appointment. Or we'll call you in the next week to check up and see how you're doing. We get told some variation of that almost every time we go to the hospital. And yet the amount of times that that call has actually happened is about zero. 99.9% .9 of the time, we have been the ones who've had to initiate the follow-up call or the follow-up appointment. Now the truth is we're not frustrated with that anymore because we know that's just how it works. But it's a reminder to us that even good-intentioned people often say things that they don't follow through with. We live in a world full of people who do not keep their word and oftentimes break their promises. And listen, if I'm honest, sometimes I'm one of those people too. I say that I'll do something, and then I don't. Now, most of the time, it's because I forget, or something else comes up, or circumstances change. In other words, I'm not usually intentionally trying to go back on my word. But nevertheless, the point is, sometimes I do. And I'm guessing you do too sometimes. But here's the thing you need to understand this morning. God is not like that. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't forget his promises. He doesn't get too busy and then not do it. He's not distracted by other things. To use the language of Joshua 21, not one of his promises fails. All of them come to pass. Now, because we live in a world that is full of broken promises and full of promise breakers, I think it's hard for us to embrace this promise-keeping nature of who God is. But it's part of his unchanging character. and something we must learn to embrace. 
we can trust him at his word. When he tells us, for example, that all who put their trust in Jesus Christ will be rescued from their sin, we can take it to the bank. When he promises us that if we are in Christ, one day we will be resurrected from the dead and reign with Christ forever, it's going to happen. When he informs us in Romans 8 that he's working for our good in all things, those of us who are in Christ, that's not a religious platitude. It's a fact. And when he tells us there's a day coming for those of us who are in Jesus where there'll be no more mourning and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more difficulty, that's not wishful thinking, it's reality. Because the fact of the matter is when God says he's going to do something, he does it. Now the book of 2 Corinthians is very clear in letting us know that all of the promises that God makes find their yes ultimately in Jesus. In other words, it's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that ultimately we see God fulfilling all these promises. Nevertheless, the point is simply this. God keeps his word. So when Luke tells us here in Acts 28.16 that Paul safely arrived in Rome, that's not just a geographic description. It's a reminder. God kept his promises. He did what he said he was going to do. Whatever it took, even if it meant that his servant had to shake off a deadly snake, it was going to happen. So that's the first thing we learn about the character of God in this passage, that God keeps his promises. The second is this. It's actually an extension of some of the things we talked about last week. God provides for his people. So God keeps his promises. God provides for his people. In Acts 28, 1-16, God's provision is everywhere. In fact, his provision is multifaceted in this passage. Let me point out four different ways, actually, that we see God providing for Paul and other Christians in this passage. First, I want you to note note this, that God provides safety and protection. Look again at the language of verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. Now, the language here, we were brought safely through, would indicate that someone brought them safely through. So who was it that brought Paul and his companions to Malta? Well, given what we read last week in Acts 27, the answer to that question is obvious. It's God. Who was it that protected Paul from the viper bite? God. Who was it that ultimately brings Paul and the others to safety in Rome? It's God. God provides safety and protection for his people. Now again, as I said last week, I'm not suggesting that God keeps his people from all difficulty or that if we follow him, everything will be easy and comfortable and we'll always feel really safe. Now the truth is sometimes God's people face persecution. Sometimes God's people are put in danger. Sometimes God's people are killed. So I'm not suggesting here that if you follow Jesus, your life will be easy, you'll always feel safe and comfortable. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is twofold. One, any protection and safety we do have comes from God. How many times have you had a close call and in the moment thought to yourself, whoa, someone must have been looking out for me there. I can think of several times where I've been driving and I narrowly escaped disaster and immediately I thought, thank you, God. That was an act of God. And I don't think in that moment that's just wishful thinking. I think there's a certainty in my mind that was God's hand that kept me from getting in an accident. That's one thing I would say about his safety and protection. He he provides safety and that any safety and protection we have comes from him. But on top of that, I would say this. When we talk about God providing safety and protection, what we also mean is this. God brings his people safely to his kingdom. This is what Paul's getting at in 2 Timothy 4 when he says this, and I quote, 
The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now when Paul says that, he'll bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, he's not saying God will keep me from all danger. I will be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. It's going to be good. That's not what he's saying. In fact, as he's writing 2 Timothy, he's in prison awaiting his execution. 2 Timothy is believed to be the last letter that he wrote before he was beheaded. So Paul is not preaching a prosperity gospel when he says, God will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into the kingdom. Far from it. Rather, he's simply saying this. God keeps his people safe in the sense that he delivers them to the kingdom. Those who've trusted in Jesus can be assured they will get to the kingdom of God. God will bring them there safely. And that's what we ultimately mean when we say that God provides safety and protection for his people. But we also see a second way God provides in this passage. God provides kindness from strangers. Now, one of the really interesting aspects of both Acts 27 and Acts 28 is how God uses strangers, in fact, non-believers in many cases, to care for Paul and his travel companions. In Acts 27, the centurion Julius treated Paul with kindness, kindness and even saved him from a murderous plot. Here in Acts 28, again, unbelieving strangers come to the aid of Paul. We see this in verse 2 and verse 7. Verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Again, verse 7, we see something similar. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. I think we sometimes forget that God places strangers in our lives, even oftentimes non-believing strangers, as a way of caring for us as believers. To give you an example, when we went to the Congo to pick up our daughter Karis, on the first day that we were at our hotel, we somehow got locked into the room and we could not get out. Our door was jammed, there were bars on the window, it felt like a prison. And so all we could do is start yelling, help us. And to our rescue came a man from Utah named Hugh. Now Hugh was a Mormon and did not know Jesus. In my subsequent conversations with Hugh, we actually had a long theological conversation one night, it's very apparent he does not believe what the word of God says about Jesus Christ. So let me be clear, he doesn't know Jesus, and yet God still used Hugh in crazy ways to show us kindness. At one point, Hugh gave me a shirt that I needed for a meeting. On another occasion, he drove us across town to help us get internet access. And in fact, he was instrumental in helping us make some connections at the government offices so we could get our paperwork done and get back home. Now again, let me be clear, Hugh did not know Jesus. He was not living for the glory of God. But God had placed him in our lives as an act of kindness to us. But this is what God does. He often provides through, for his people, even through strangers, sometimes those that don't know Christ. But third, I think we see this too. God provides material provision for his people. I want you to look at the incident here in verses 7 to 10. Verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, obviously, there's a lot happening here in verses 7 to 10. And I certainly don't want to downplay the miraculous healing of verse 8 as if that's no big deal. It's a big deal. Right? Paul prays and God heals. That's incredible. 
And we would have to assume that because of the healing, and then the subsequent healing of verse 9, that Paul had more opportunities to share the good news about Jesus. And clearly, given everything we read in the book of Acts, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ was at the forefront of everything Paul did and the reason why he did what he did. So I'm not trying to downplay that either. But what I'm saying is there's also something else going on here, right? He's healing so they can proclaim Jesus. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But God is also providing for his people. Look again at verse 10. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So again, hear me. The proclamation of the gospel was, in my mind, undoubtedly the reason why Paul performed the healings, or why God performed the healings through Paul in verses 8 and 9. Now, it's not explicitly stated, but I think we can assume, given what we read in the rest of the book of Acts, this is what Paul would do immediately after the healings took place. He would proclaim Jesus. But one of the side benefits of these healings is that God then used those healings to provide materially for his people. The people of Malta are thankful, and so they give. They give so that they have material blessings aboard the ship. And in that, we see God providing for his people. In Matthew 6, the passage Jim read earlier, Jesus talks about not being anxious about what we'll eat or drink or wear. He encourages us to look to the lilies of the fields and the birds of the air. He says, don't worry about these things. Instead, seek first my kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. I think what's happening here in Acts 28 is actually a visible and tangible picture of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6. Paul was living for Jesus, seeking first the kingdom, proclaiming Christ, and God was taking care of his material needs through the people of Malta. God provides material provision for his people. Now, one of the coolest things that's happened to us over the course of the last three years, and really over the course of our, last, uh, our, over, over the course of our lifetime, but certainly in the last three years, as we've dealt with all kinds of stuff with Dawson and his health, is God has provided for us along every step of the way. There have been times where we thought, how is this going to work out? We have to go to Houston, or we have to go to Denver. How are we going to make all this work? And yet, through insurance coverage, or through generosity of people in this church, or even through the generosity of strangers, time and time again, God has provided. There's never been a point where we've had to stress about money, despite all that we've gone through the last three years. And that is God's kindness to us, His provision. Now, let me be clear in saying this. Even if we would have had to stress about those things, God still would be just as good and just as kind. But one of the displays of his kindness to us is that he provided for us. But again, this is what he does, right? He provides for his people sometimes in these crazy ways like he does here through the people of Malta. Lastly, though, I want you to see this. God also provides fellowship and encouragement from fellow believers. Now, one of the underlying subplots of Acts 27 and 28 is God using fellow believers to encourage Paul and minister to Paul. In Acts 27.3, Julius gives leave to Paul to go to his Christian friends in Sidon, and he does. In verse 14 of Acts 28, Paul finds brothers and sisters in Christ in Petoli and stays with them for seven days. But in my mind, the most profound expression of Christian fellowship happens in verse 15. So let me read verse 14 for the sake of context, and then we'll go to verse 15. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Now at this point, it's probably helpful to explain something about Paul's journey. And this is why I've actually asked Cade to keep the map up here on the screen. From Malta to Petoli. So Malta there is in the island, the bottom part, to Petoli, which you can see there up in Italy. From that part of the journey, from Malta to Petoli, they were on a ship. 
Obviously, they'd shipwrecked their first ship, so they get another ship, and they travel by sea from Malta to Petoli. But from Petoli onward to Rome, they were traveling by foot. The journey from Petoli to Rome was roughly about 130 miles and probably took about five days, which is pretty impressive that they were able to cover that much ground in that amount of time. Or at least that's the general thought given how people traveled during those time periods. Now, apparently, what happened is some brothers, who were living in Christ, or some brothers in Christ who were living in Rome heard that Paul was on his way. And so they made their way south towards Petoli to greet Paul. Some made it as far as three taverns, which you can see there on the screen. It was approximately 33 miles from Rome. Others made it as far as the Forum of Appius, or the Appia Forum, which is approximately 43 miles from Rome. Now keep in mind, these brothers in Christ had likely never met Paul before. Given that Paul had never been to Rome on any of his missionary journeys, it's almost certain that at least the vast majority of them had never met him. They'd only heard about Paul or heard from Paul in his letters. And yet they want to encourage him as he's headed to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And so they travel 30 or 40 miles, presumably by foot. And in that, there's something profoundly beautiful about the picture here in Acts 28. It would not be uncommon for citizens to go out on the road to greet a king as he was coming to Rome. But Paul was no king. He was a prisoner. And yet his fellow Christians are willing to travel, again, presumably by foot, 30 or 40 miles to encourage him and let him know he's not alone. It's no wonder then that upon sight of these Christians, Paul's response is to give thanks to God and take courage. I'm not alone here. Now listen, I know that sometimes the church gets a bad reputation, and sometimes for good reason. But when the church functions like it should, as it is here in Acts 28, it is a beautiful thing. And if I can just add a word of personal testimony here. I think being a part of this church body is one of the greatest blessings that we have as a family. Many of you have rejoiced with us in our moments of rejoicing, and you've wept with us in our moments of weeping. You prayed with us, you've encouraged us, you've challenged us, you've loved us. In short, you have been a blessing and a gift from God to us. Now, I know that this church is not perfect. I know there are plenty of flaws and much work still to be done. And all those things can be said about me too, by the way. But we thank God that we have the blessing of brothers and sisters in Christ who walk beside us. We thank God for you. In fact, I'll say this. While a lot of great things happened on our sabbatical this summer, undoubtedly the hardest part for us was being away from you guys for three months. As a family, we need you because God has designed us to be better together. And that's not just true for my family. That's true for you too. And to that point, let me just say this. If you've been on the fence for a while in terms of getting involved in the church, maybe you're just a person who comes on Sunday mornings and then you go home. Or maybe you've been waffling back and forth deciding, should I become a church member? Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to take the plunge. Because there is something beautiful about living all in, in deep community. It's a mess. Sometimes it's frustrating, right? Sometimes it's hard, but it is a beautiful thing when the church lives together because we need each other. And God has gifted us with one another. In fact, one of the ways he provides for us is by giving us fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who come alongside and say, you're not alone. Just like what happens here in Acts 28. The brothers travel from Rome 30, 40 miles to encourage Paul, you're not alone. God provides for his people. He provides for his people fellowship. 
But of course, we would be remiss if we didn't point this out. The ultimate way that God provides for us is by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. In fact, in the book of Acts, it's clear this is at the forefront of everything. God's provision of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose three days later. That if anyone would trust in him, they could be rescued from their sin and have life forever with Jesus. That is God's ultimate provision. And if you've never responded to that provision, let me encourage you this morning, start there. The point, though, is this. God provides for his people. And his provision is another evidence of his good character. Now, having said all that, having talked about God's character and that he keeps his promises and God's character and that he provides for his people, I think it's important that we actually think about, well, how should we respond to this news this morning? Earlier this week, someone told me that Abraham Lincoln was actually an accomplished wrestler in his younger years. I don't even know if that's true, although the person who told me that is trustworthy, so I assume it is. But here's the thing. When I learned this information, I did not live differently at all this week. I just kept doing what I normally do. And sometimes I think we respond to information about God in the same way. Oh, God keeps his promises. That's cool. Or God is providing for his people. Well, isn't that nice? And then we just move on. But we've said this before and we'll say it again. The truth of the Bible is not meant to be admired. It's meant to be applied. We're not just to collect facts when we're together on Sunday morning. We are meant to respond. Now, in the case of Acts 28, I think Paul's response to God's provision of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is actually a model for us in terms of how we can respond to God's good character. Again, we see this response in verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, here's the response, Paul thanked God and took courage. So how do we respond to God's provision? How do we respond to God keeping his promises? How do we respond to the good character of God? I would contend that we should respond in the same way that Paul did. First, by giving thanks to God. Listen, our God keeps every last one of his promises. Every last word that he has promised us will come to fruition. Most notably, all of the promises that are true for us in Christ. The promises of justification before God, that we will be declared not guilty in his sight. The promise of a future resurrection. The promise of a future glory with Christ. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth. If you are in Christ, those things are going to happen. On top of that, God provides for us on a daily basis. He provides safety and protection, kindness from strangers, material provision, the blessing of Christian fellowship. And so in light of all that, my question is simply this. How could we not be thankful? Now, I've noticed this with my kids, but with kids in general. Sometimes kids can become fixated on what they don't have rather than thankful for what they do have. Compared to almost every other kid throughout the course of history or throughout the course of the rest of the world, the kids that live in Fremont, Nebraska in 2022 have more than almost anyone. And yet, isn't it interesting that what kids really want is what someone else has? Right? They have all this stuff, and yet what they really want is that thing. It's kind of sad, actually, right? But if we're honest, even as adults, we have the same mentality. Rather than being thankful for all of the things we have in Christ, we tend to fixate on the things we don't have. If only I had my health, or if only I had this job, or if only we could live here, or if only God would have answered that prayer. And listen, I'm not trying to downplay those things and make them seem as if they're small fries, because oftentimes those are really big deals. 
but perhaps we should make it our goal to focus more on what we have in Jesus and less on what we don't have. Because what we have in Christ is incredible, right? We have forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and future glory. This should make us thankful. We should be thankful. In fact, we should make a habit of being thankful people, whether that means being thankful to God in prayer or journaling our thankfulness or just speaking regularly of all the blessings God has given us. One of the ways that we can express our, our gratitude for who God is is just to give thanks. One of the ways we respond to our character is to give thanks. But secondly, I think we can take courage. Listen, if God keeps his promises and provides for his people, we don't have to be wimps or scaredy cats or cowards. We can take courage and do hard stuff. After all, God's promises are sure, and he will give us everything we need for life and godliness. So we can take a few more chances, and we can be a little bit more bold, and we can sell out more for Jesus because he is worth it, and his character can be trusted. Listen, I'm just going to be honest here. I have no idea what the rest of this year will hold for any of us. But I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that there will probably be some good stuff that happens and probably some hard stuff too. But here's what I know. In the midst of an uncertain and unpredictable world, one thing is unchanging, and that is the character of God. And as we're reminded here in Acts 28, part of his character means that he keeps his promises and he provides for his people. And so my encouragement to us this morning is then let's give thanks and let's take courage. And most importantly, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders here in Acts 28 of your good character. We understand there's a lot going on in Acts 28, poison snakes, miraculous healings, recovery from shipwrecks, all that. But at the end of the day, this is about your character. It's about you fulfilling your promises. It's about you providing for your people. And so this morning, I pray that we would leave here today not thinking about snakes or healings, but rather thinking about who you are and your great character. Lord, please help us to do so. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.